There's never been a more remarkable individual that's ever walked the face of the earth than Jesus Christ. And what a blessing. I can stand up here and you could, you seated out there, those watching live video streaming or those in our chapel, greetings, welcome. Many of us, the majority of us could say we know him and we love him. And we're here at church because of our love and devotion to him. And our desire in life is to know him more, to know him better, to have a closer walk with Christ. And uh, it just, you know, breaks your heart that there are so many people in our world that don't know Jesus yet. Um, maybe they haven't heard of him. And they're not open to him yet. But that's why we need to pray. And that's why we need to share and let our light shine. Because the key of life, the meaning of life, the purpose of life is only found in Jesus Christ. And what a joy and what a privilege it is to serve him. And to say, I know him. I know him. So I love this series that we're in. Uh, I, I love this time of the year as we move towards, you know, Holy Week and Palm Sunday and our Good Friday services and then our, our Easter weekend services. And, you know, the, the theme, the topic, of course, is Jesus. And so we're taking a look at his life. Uh, this series, we've entitled, entitled it, Jesus Did What? There are some things that Jesus did that were very unorthodox. He would eat without washing his hands, a violation of Old Testament law. Uh, he would heal somebody on the Sabbath day, which, you know, really upset the religious leaders of his day. Because after all, you can't help somebody on the, on the Sabbath. He would say things almost, it seemed, intentionally to offend people. And then last week, we looked at how on three separate occasions, Jesus used his saliva to bring about healing. And so we talked about how if we are Christians, and here's our, our text for this series in 1 John chapter 2, verse 6. Let's read it out loud together. Anyone who says he is a Christian should live as Christ did. And so what does that mean to us? Well, when we look at the life of Jesus, we say, hey, what, can, what lesson can we learn and that we can begin to apply in our own lives? So last week we talked about how sometimes you have to be willing to get a little, a little dirty to live clean. We talked about mud theology and how that applies in our lives. But today, this weekend, we're going to look at the fact that at times it seemed as though Jesus would run late to an appointment. That he would be tardy. That he didn't practice promptness. He wasn't punctual. Sometimes he even seemed like he would procrastinate. You know, really... There are two types of people in the world, those who are extremely punctual and those who run a little late in life. Now, how many of you, no show of hands, how many of you showed up to church on time? Especially this weekend, right? Because we had to set our clocks one hour ahead. It was strange for me this morning. I was driving into the parking lot for our early service and it was still dark outside. This is always a strange time of, of the year. But there are two types of people, you know, those that are kind of are more punctual and those that show up late. I was surprised uh, to find out that when it comes to our jobs, 20% of workers are late to work at least once a week. And the reason usually is related to transportation, other excuses related to I slept in. Uh, that accounts for 24% of, of people that show up late to work. 10% uh, claim it's because of something related to their, their children. And that, that's understandable, right? That's understandable. Uh, but some people, they just run late in life. They, they just show up late in, in life. And uh, 
Sometimes we, we think, well, what's behind that? And can that be fixed? It can. It can. They say that the goal for people that have a tendency to run late and show up late in life, the goal shouldn't be to get somewhere on time. The goal should be give yourself permission to arrive early. That's a different look at it. Uh, also, we could develop a kind of a biblical worldview related to time, that we are creatures of time, even though God is, is, is beyond time and above time and created time for us. But we are creatures of time, and so the Bible has a lot to say about time. And, the, and Paul the Apostle said that we should redeem the time because the days are evil. In other words, we should make the most of time, make the most of, of opportunities, because we have so little time, don't we? Time is like the most valuable commodity to us. Because you could lose money and then you could gain it again. But once you've lost time, you can't get it back. And correcting procrastination tendencies is akin to maybe losing weight. It is doable. It is achievable. But it's not very easy. Hey, sometimes we think to, to, to our loved ones or friends, why don't you just show up on time? You know, you need to be more punctual. Just start showing up on time. Well, that's like telling somebody that may be struggling with food, why don't you just go on a diet? Well, if, that was, if, was that, if losing weight was that easy, there would be no Weight Watchers. There would be no Jenny Craig. Marie Osmond wouldn't have a job, right? So it's not as simple as, well, just start showing up on time. There was a man that was running late for a job interview, and he needed this job. And so he was so desperate, he thought he would just try this prayer stuff. So he's in the parking lot, couldn't find a parking, running late. And he said, God, if you will give me a parking spot, I promise I'll start going to church, I'll start living better, I'll start treating people better. And no sooner did he stop that prayer, a parking spot in the front of the building appeared seemingly out of nowhere. He pulled into it, jumped out of his car. As he was going up the escalator, he looked up and said, never mind, God, I found a spot. <laughs> Running late. There were at least two occasions in the life of Jesus where it seemed he was running late. And it resulted in at least two deaths. The first is the story of a guy by the name of Jairus. He was a father. He had a daughter. and She was deathly ill. And in Mark's Gospel, chapter 5, beginning in verse 21, it says, When Jesus had gone across by boat to the other side of the lake, a vast crowd gathered around him on the shore. The leader of the local synagogue, whose name was Jairus, came and fell down before him, pleading with him to heal his little daughter. She's at the point of death, he said in desperation. Please come and place your hands on her and make her live. Jesus went with him and the crowd Throng behind. So in this story, here's a father who is desperate. He's desperate for an answer to a need in his life. And that is the apple of his eye, the pearl of great price, the treasure in his heart was his little daughter. And she was deathly ill. Now, in many of the miracles of Jesus, 
We don't know who the person was. We don't know what their occupation was. We know very little about them other than they were on the receiving end of an incredible miracle. But in this instance, the Bible gives us quite a bit of detail about this individual by the name of Jairus. He was a prominent individual in his community. He was a leader in the local synagogue. Now the Jewish people were required at least three times a year to travel to Jerusalem to go to the temple and to worship for a very important feast that happened every year, like the Feast of Passover or the Feast of Pentecost. But normally, when there was not a special celebration that required them to go to Jerusalem and to the temple itself, they worshipped in their local synagogues. Every community had a synagogue. It was a place where the scriptures were read, prayer was offered. And the Bible even tells us in Luke chapter 4, verse 13, it was the custom of Jesus, it was the habit of Jesus to do the very thing that we're doing. On the Sabbath, he would go to the local synagogue and he would be a part of that worship experience on the Sabbath. Of course, for Jesus, that happened on Saturdays. One time in Luke 4, Jesus went to that synagogue, which was his habit, and he stood up and he read he picked up the scroll from the book, from the, the prophecy of Isaiah, read a portion of that, Isaiah 61, and then he ended by saying this, today these words are fulfilled in your ears. And he placed the scroll down, and many of the religious leaders knew exactly what he meant by that. He's saying, I am the one that Isaiah prophesied about long ago. And they actually let him, tried to lead him out of the city and throw him off of a cliff, and that's one of the last times that Jesus ever came back to the synagogue because he was kicked out of the synagogue. So Jairus was the leader of a synagogue. Now, he wasn't the priest, but as the leader of the synagogue, he was kind of like the, CE, the COO or the CFO. He was the administrator of the synagogue, a very prominent and important position. And I say that because for Jairus to be looking for Jesus to bring healing into his daughter's life, it was risky. Because Jesus was already labeled a, a heretic and a, and a rebel rouser. There's only one thing that mattered most to Jairus. It wasn't his prominent position. It wasn't his standing in the community. It was his daughter desperately needed a miracle, and he knew where to find it, in the miracle worker himself, Jesus. I love this Jairus. I believe that we can learn a powerful lesson from his example, that every daughter and every son deserves to have a father like Jairus. I hope growing up you had a father like Jairus. He was a man that loved God. He was a man that loved his family. He was a man that put his family's needs above his own personal needs. He was a man that loved the local synagogue or as we would say today he loved the church. He was involved in that church. You see every son, every daughter deserves a father like that. A father when that family reached a crisis moment, he knew where to turn. Not to the local tavern. He knew to turn to Jesus. And when his daughter was desperately in need, here was Jairus looking for the answer. And he found the answer in Jesus. We need more men that are willing to bring Jesus into their homes and bring Jesus back to their families. Amen. So he finds Jesus. And there are literally hundreds and hundreds of people that day. And he, and he gets an audience with Jesus. And he explains what's going on. And I love Jesus' response. He's like, let's go. 
that tells us a lot about the heart of Father God, the heart of God. You see, Jesus didn't say this. When Jairus said, my daughter, who was 12 years of age, she's dying, will you come and pray for her? He didn't say, oh, well, well, I can't do that. I made her sick. It's my will that she be sick. There's a lesson I want you to learn from your daughter's sickness. That's what religion may have said, but not Jesus. It's not Jesus that makes us sick in life. It's Jesus that makes us well in life. He's not the giver of bad gifts. He's the giver of good gifts. Amen? Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father. This was the will of Jesus. The will of God was to bring healing in this, in this family, to bring healing in this daughter. So they're walking to Jairus' house when all of a sudden, out of nowhere, there's this woman that appears. And the Bible says she was a woman with an issue of blood. She hemorrhaged. She bled. She had, there was no cure. She went to every doctor. She spent all that she had. She was the none better. But this woman, without invitation, this woman said, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, I know I will be made well. What faith she demonstrated. A throng of people, hundreds and hundreds of people pressing in at Jesus. Jesus is already en route to go to Jairus' house, and out of nowhere, here comes this woman. She reaches in, and she touches the hem of his garment, and she's instantly healed. And Jesus stops dead in his tracks, and he says, who touched me? And the disciples were like, are you kidding me? <laughs> what do you mean? Who I mean, like, there are hundreds of people. They're all around you. Everyone seems to be touching you. He said, no. I, this is what Jesus said, I felt power go out of me. Now, I don't know about you, but if I were Jairus, I'd be like, hello, lady. Uh-uh, you get in line. I came to Jesus first. You took cuts. That ain't fair. I've got a need. My daughter's dying. And Jesus is on his way to my house. And you're delaying the master. He didn't say that. There's no indication that he did. He just patiently waited. What a guy. Jesus begins to enter into a conversation with this woman, affirms this woman, applauds this woman's faith. All along, the clock is ticking. Time is running out for Jairus. And lo and behold, here's what happens. Verse 35 of Mark 5. While he was still talking to her, messengers arrived from Jairus' home with the news that it was too late. Sometimes that's the news the world gives us. It's too late. His daughter was dead, and there was no point in Jesus coming now. But Jesus ignored their comments and said to Jairus, I want you to read this last part out loud with me. Don't be afraid, just trust me. One more time. Don't be afraid, just trust me. That's a powerful message for all of us. That's a powerful message for your life and my life when we find ourselves in our own hour of need, in our own crisis moment in life. The Lord's, the Lord's word to Jairus is the same to us. Don't be afraid. The thing that we can't allow happen is we can't allow fear to grip us. We must hold true to the promises of God during those crisis moments in our life. Not allow fear to overtake our faith. But as Jesus told Jairus, only believe, don't fear, only believe. Or, as it says in this translation, just trust me. It's not going to be easy. Just trust me. And that's what Jairus did. All the way, step by step by step, knowing that his daughter was dead. Not knowing what was going to happen. Didn't have the Bible stories that we now have the privilege of reading and learning about. 
concerning Jesus and what he could do and what he is capable of. But he trusted all the way to his house, all the way into the back bedroom of his house, till Jesus walked in that room and there was the cold, dead body of his daughter that he loved. And Jesus raised her from the dead. What a miracle. And what an answer to this man's prayer. Even though it seemed as though it was too late. With God, it's never too late. The second example of Jesus seemingly running late happened to be with a personal friend of his. Jesus had a personal relationship with a family, Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha. He enjoyed spending time with them. He enjoyed, apparently, Martha was a tremendous cook. And, uh, you know, what, what man, even our Savior, doesn't love a good meal, home-cooked meal. And you know the story when Jesus was at their house one day, you know, uh, Mary chose to go sit at the feet of Jesus while Martha was getting everything ready. And she kind of complained to Jesus about Mary, you know, not helping in the kitchen, blah, blah, blah. Like, you know the story. But Jesus loved this family. Well, word comes to Jesus that Lazarus, his friend, is sick. Sick. And the Bible tells us that Jesus waited two days, intentionally waited two days before he went to his friend. As a result of Jesus waiting two days, because the, when the word came to Jesus that Lazarus was sick, that may have taken a day or two to, to get to Jesus, find him. Jesus waits two days, another day or two to travel back to where Lazarus was. By the time Jesus arrives in the story here in John's Gospel, chapter 11, Lazarus has been dead for four days. It's too late. So let's pick up the story in uh, John chapter 11, beginning in verse 5. So although Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. And finally, he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. So they go back, and Martha comes out to greet Jesus, and it says, we'll pick up in verse 20. When Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary stayed in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord... If only you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. And then Martha responds, because she had really good theology. She responds, she knew scripture. She says, I know, I know, Lord, in the last day he'll rise again. That's not what Jesus was referring to. One of the greatest, if not the greatest miracle that Jesus ever performed was about to take place in raising Lazarus from the dead after he had been dead for four days. You see, the Jews had some superstitious belief that when a person dies, their soul lingers around their body for three days. So the fact that Jesus waited till the fourth day, this would be a convincing demonstration of God's glory and God's power through Jesus Christ. In the fact that of a guy that had been dead now for four days and as was told him, Lord, you can't roll the stone away. By now, his body is beginning to decompose. It stinks really bad. But then Jesus, at that tomb, before the miracle, he weeps. The shortest verse in the Bible is found in John eleven thirty five. 35. It says, Jesus wept. And the beauty of this entire story is it shows us the deity of Jesus in that he raised a man from the dead, but also the humanity of Jesus and that as he stood outside that tomb, he wept. Even though he knew he was about to raise his friend from the dead, Jesus, he feels what you feel. 
He's, he experiences what you have experienced. You see, Satan has never been a human, only a fallen angel. And yet there was a time when God became a man through his son, Jesus Christ. And that's why the Bible says that Jesus is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. And when you experience sorrow, he knows what it's like. When you experience joy, he knows what it's like. When you experience betrayal, he knows what it's like. When you've experienced pain and suffering in your life, he knows what it's like. For he was a man acquainted with grief and sorrow, the Bible says. So he's touched with the feeling of our infirmities. And when you stand at the gravesite of a loved one that's gone on before you, hopefully to go to heaven, and your heart is broken, and we ask the question, why? And maybe like Martha, we're really sincere and raw in our emotions, and we say, Lord, if only you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. Sometimes things happen, and we're like, Lord, why? If you were here, this wouldn't have happened. And there are events and things that happen in life that we can't explain. And we're like, why? Why me? Why us? Why now? Why this? But the Lord's there. And his promise is sure. And his promise is steadfast. And we as Christians know death is not the final. It's not final. It's, it's not the final word in the matter. Death is an enemy. Clearly, the Bible says that death is an enemy. Matter of fact, it's an enemy of God. It's an enemy of mankind. And death was not the result of God. He created us to live forever. Death is the result of sin and man's disobedience. And the Bible says the last enemy to be put under the feet of Christ will be death itself. And there'll be a time there'll be no more death. But for the Christian, death is just a portal, right? It's an elevator that takes us from this world to the next world. Our last breath here will be our first breath in eternity. And we as Christians know that if you know, if our loved ones have gone on before us, the day will come when we will see them again in heaven where we will all be united. And there is the resurrection that will one day come that we will all partake of. So Jesus performs this incredible miracle and the people rejoice. And the crazy thing is, is uh, I'm reading through the Gospel of John in my devotional reading. So this morning I'm reading through John and... A couple days ago, I read through this story, coincidentally, and the crazy thing is, Jesus gets together after this miracle. He gets back together again with Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, and they're celebrating. Lazarus is now raised from the dead. Can you imagine that, being dead for four days and coming back? Imagine the story you could tell. Imagine the book deals that you would probably get. I mean, you would be booked on every TV show, right? But there's also, you know, something bad to that. I mean, like, Lazarus is one of the few people that died, rose from the dead, and has to die again. I mean, dying once is hard enough, you know what I mean? But, but that's cool because he had this testimony. But the religious leaders plotted how they could kill Lazarus again. Wow, religious people just don't get it sometimes, right? They not only wanted to kill Jesus, but they tried to figure out a way to kill Lazarus again. Wow. So here's the question. Why does God seemingly delay? Why does it seem at times that he runs late in answering our prayers for healing, salvation of a loved one, some prayer, some petition? I want to submit to you four reasons for God's delays, which are never denials, but they're just delays. The first is because of God's grace. 
Sometimes we don't understand why the Lord has shown up and it seems late. We prayed and it didn't happen or it hasn't happened yet. We're like, why? There was a time in the Apostle Paul's life where he was being attacked by a, an evil spirit. He was being buffeted by a messenger of Satan, the Bible calls him. A messenger of Satan. A thorn in his flesh. And it was so severe, Paul could put up with a lot. He had been shipwrecked, he had been stoned, left for dead, beat up, in prison. This guy was tough as nails. And yet in this instance, he sought the Lord three times. Lord, please help me. And here's, what God, here's how God responded to him on each occasion. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, the first part of that verse. And God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. You may not understand this right now, Paul, but here's what you need to know. My grace is sufficient for you. And so we have to trust while we wait, because God's delays are never out of indifference. God's delays are never out of personal weariness. God's delays are never out of his powerlessness, because he's all-powerful, and he's completely and perfect goodness and love. But God is an infinite, in his infinite wisdom knows things that we don't know. And there are times he simply says, my grace is sufficient for you. God doesn't give us everything we want when we want it. And in his wisdom, he doesn't. Every parent in here understands that. You cannot give your children everything they want when they want. And the parents that make that mistake and give their kids everything they want when they want, that's why we have the mess on our hands that we have today related to parenting. You have seven-year-old kids that are addicted to iPhones. You have 10-year-old little boys that are playing bloody video games. And you have preteen girls whose moms are taking them to Victoria's Secret to find their personal sexuality. Where our kids are being raised up and becoming adults way too early in life. We need to give it time. We can't give our kids everything they want when they want it. One of my favorite theologians, James Montgomery Boyce, he was the great pastor of the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. He has a great set of commentaries that have been a tremendous blessing in my life for the last couple of decades. And here's a quote that I want to share with you. Learn to interpret circumstances by the love of Christ and not Christ's love by the circumstances. Look at that. Ponder that for a moment. Let it seep into your spirit. Sometimes we look at the circumstances and we think, how could God love us? It's the wrong way to look at him. But we look at every circumstance in life and we say this, I know God loves me. I know God has my, my, best, my best interest at heart. There you go. God has your best interest at heart. And we believe in the goodness of God. And so we're going to trust when God says, my grace is sufficient for you, Carl. We have to accept that. Number two, God delays or because of his goodness. Romans chapter 2 verse 4. Or do you despise the riches of his goodness? Forbearance, these are the, some of the attributes of God. His long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. I love what Richard Baxter said. He said that God's goodness is equal to his greatness. As great as God is, is as good as God is. And the one thing that's a non-negotiable and should be a non-negotiable in your life and in my life is this. God is good. I don't understand why certain things happen. I don't understand why. Maybe you, you may be saying, God, I don't understand why I'm going through what I'm going through. Why, why did this happen to us? Sometimes we don't have the answers this side of eternity. But here's what we know. Here's one non-negotiable in our life. We know God is good. And everything that God does is good. And the only bad that's in this world 
is because of the evil and the sin that we, man, brought into this world in our disobedience to God. The only evil in this world is the evil that has been brought here by Satan himself. Because Jesus said in John 10.10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I've come that you might have life and life more abundantly. You know, the very first temptation in the garden was a temptation against the goodness of God. Lucifer said to Eve, did God really say you cannot eat of all the fruit in the garden? In other words, he was saying, God's holding back on you. God's holding out on you. God's keeping you from something. Look at this tree. Look at this fruit. Look at how good it looks. Imagine what it tastes like. God's not meeting your needs. Go on, take a bite. That was the same strategy he tried to employ with Jesus in the wilderness when he said, if the Father really loved you, would he allow you to be starving to death? Go ahead, use your power. Turn these stones into bread. Almost every temptation is trying to challenge and question the goodness of God in your life. Don't fall for the devil's lies. The third reason for God's apparent delays is because of his greater blessing, the greater blessing that he has in store for our life that sometimes we can't see presently. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 16, we all know the story of Esau and Jacob. And the Bible says, watch out for the Esau syndrome, trading away God's lifelong gift in order to satisfy a short-term appetite. Because Esau came back from a hunting trip and he was so hungry, Jacob was making lentil stew. And he said, man, I'm hungry, give me some. And Jacob said, if you'll give me your, your birthright. He said, what use is that to me right now? I'm so hungry. Okay. And he sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. And the principle is this. Never make a permanent decision based on a temporary circumstance. Never make a permanent decision in your life based on a temporary emotion, based on a temporary feeling, based on a temporary moment of pain and discomfort in your life. You know, Billy Graham, when he would travel and speak at, at universities and, and Christian Bible colleges, he was very transparent and he was very candid in that early on in his life, he was wanting to get married and he met a lot of fine young ladies. And each time he said, Lord, I pray, is she the one? Let her be the one. And God said, no. And then another one. And Lord, it, may it be her. C can she be the one? And the Lord said, no. And he didn't understand why God kept saying no. It wasn't until he met Ruth Bell, who became his wife, Ruth Bell Graham. And he realized the greater blessing of God was if he had married some of these other nice Christian young ladies, perhaps his ministry would not have reached the influence that it had reached because he married right. Sometimes when God says no or God says wait, we have to trust because he has something better for us because God wants what's best for your life. Turn to your neighbor and say, God wants what's best for you. Go on, tell him that. And if you're single, say, I think I'm him. Just kidding. And the final reason for God's delay is, number four, because of God's timing. Yeah, because of God's grace, because of God's goodness, because of God's greater blessing. And number four, God's timing. In Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 6, it says, there's a right time and a right way to do everything. But we really do know so little. Sometimes our timetable is not the same as God's timetable. And we have to trust and not fear. And we have to believe. And we have to hold on. And sometimes we get impatient. You know, God told Abraham, I'm going to give you your own son through Sarah. And, 
And they waited and waited and waited and waited. Nothing was happening. Like, God, did you forget my address, where I live, who I am, what you said? And you know what happened? They, they tried to help God out, and they made a mess of things and had an Ishmael. When all along God wanted them to have an Isaac. But God, you know, he's so merciful and gracious and loving and kind and patient. He still gave them their Isaac. But it wasn't until he was 100 and Sarah was 90. Like, I don't want to wait that long. Sometimes God's time frame is not the same as our time frame. And how many of you know we don't want to get ahead of God? We want to trust, not fear. And we want to be patient. And we want to wait on God's timing. And if something's not happening that you think should be happening right now, it's not God's timing. Maybe there's a greater blessing that he's preparing for you. And God is worthy of our trust. And sometimes delays test our patience and our obedience. And maybe it's a test that we need to pass and not fail. Here's some quotes I came across. They're just so good not to share them with you. This verse is an anonymous quote, but it says, We ask for silver, and God sometimes sends his denials wrapped in gold. C.S. Lewis once said, If God had granted all the silly prayers I made in my life, where would I be now? And then F.B. Meyer said, The great tragedy of life is not unanswered prayer, but unoffered prayer. Yes, Jesus said, ask and it shall be given, seek and you shall find, knock and the door shall be opened. But the tense in the Greek is really amplified in the amplified version of that verse in Matthew 7, 7, where it says, ask, keep on asking, seek, keep on seeking, knock, keep on knocking. Because sometimes we don't know as, and we don't see as clearly as we ought. And so God wants us to be persevering in our praying. Not because he's holding out on us, not because he's wanting to see us beg for his blessing, but it's his timing, it's his grace, it's his wisdom, it's his sovereignty. And how many of you know it's okay for you and I to stop playing God in our own lives? There's already a God, and he's a perfect God, and he's a good God, and he's a loving Father, and he knows what you have need of. And before you and I ever pray, he already knows, he's already answered, he's already sent his blessing your way. We simply need to don't fear, just trust me. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Father, we humbly come before you today and we know that your delays are not denials and that when you procrastinate or when it seems as though you're running late, there's an infinite divine sovereign purpose behind it. And so Lord, teach us the invaluable lesson to trust Teach us to be like Jesus and to not be a slave to the, uh, the agendas and the timetables of this world, of this finite world that we live in, but to trust you, to learn how to wait on you and be patient, Lord. Now ask the Lord, Lord, what would you have me do with the message in my life today? What, what am I to take home? What am I to begin to apply in my own life, Lord? Thank you for revealing that by the power of your Holy Spirit. Now with heads bowed and eyes closed, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, or you need to rededicate your life to him, today's the day, now's the time. God did not bring you to this service by accident. You're not watching by coincidence. The Lord is reaching out to you right here, right now, calling you into relationship with him. That you pray this prayer out loud with the rest of us. Say it with your own mouth, mean it from your own heart. 
Dear God in heaven, I know I'm a sinner in need of a savior. There's only one savior. His name is Jesus. I call upon you, Jesus. I ask you now, come into my heart. Come into my life. Be my Lord. Be my savior. I turn from sin to the true and living God. I receive his love, his grace, and his forgiveness. Dear God in heaven, you're now my father, and I am your child. Fill me now with your Holy Spirit. Give me strength to live for you and serve you all the days of my life, beginning today for the rest of eternity. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Can we thank the Lord together, church family?